proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT FM. Welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier. This is Donna G here with you till two o'clock. Coming up, I've got some Toronto International Film Festival interviews for you, so you can mark them down on your calendar. The festival runs from the 8th to the 18th of September. We started off the show with Hot, Hot, Hot from Bend It Like Beckham, which I saw many, many years ago at the Toronto International Film Festival, where I did an, a roundtable with some other journalists with Gurinder Chadha and John Mayer, her husband's producer. 
Karen Knightley and Parminda Nagra were just very young girls at the time. Coming up next, another piece of film festival music from me to you. And this is from the film Totsi out of South Africa. And then we'll go right into my interview with John Barker about The Umbrella Men, coincidentally or not, set in South Africa. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm with the ghetto. Yeah, I 
Listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G and joining me by Zoom, which everybody is doing these days, is yeah. John Barker, the director of The Umbrella Men. And just before we started, I reminded John that the last time I interviewed him was for a small film called Bunny Chow. Uh, John, just for the fun of it, remind people what a bunny chow is. Well, yeah, literally a bunny chow is a, is a, a half a loaf of bread, which has been cut in half, and then the, the soft bit is scooped out. And then the curry of your choice is poured into that. So it's almost treated like a bowl. And um, when we were very young, we thought that that was a great metaphor for the melting pot that is Johannesburg, that uh, Johannesburg was like a, it was like a bunny chow. Yes, definitely. Now, the Umbrella Man, you're also playing with the multicultural element of a particular area of South Africa. Share with our listeners what that area is called and about the people who live there. Yeah, so the it's set in Cape Town and it's set in the um, Cape Malay community of Cape Town, which is predominantly in the Boer Carp area, which used to be the slave quarters. Um, and in the history of Cape Town, there was a there was another suburb in Cape Town called District 6, D6, which was, uh, was again, the same thing you say, is it was a melting pot of different cultures, um, black people, white people, Jewish people, Muslim, from all walks of life, all living together. And it, and it irked the, um, the apartheid government because the apartheid government saw that as the worst possible scenario, having different cultures um, living harmoniously together. So they unfortunately kicked out all the, the inhabitants um, and they sent them to all four corners of Cape Town and they bulldozed the, um, the once really beautiful bohemian suburb of D6. So a lot of those residents uh, fled and hid in the Boer Carp, which is more higher up on the mountain, which is the slave areas. Um, and they survived living out there, and, and they continued to keep the the culture of of, of singing uh, as minstrels. They kept that going all through apartheid, and so I just really wanted to highlight and to focus on a community that uh, survived for so long, and that managed to preserve um, the cultural elements that are so um, important to them. And it's a it's a beautiful area that you that you're shooting in um how familiar were you with that area before this film 
Uh, very. I mean, the the minstrels are a big part of South Africa. My my father was a, a is a soccer coach, and he was uh, coaching in, in mostly uh, black townships. He was coaching Amazulu in the seventies, and um, his team got into a final in Cape Town. So we drove down to Cape Town, and he drove us. My dad was a uh, anti apartheid activist, and um, so he drove us to District Six to show us what was going on there. And it was terrible. It was a, a apocalyptic scenes where it looked like it was the second world war where like cities had been bombed because it was half pulled down buildings and kids still playing in the streets while bulldozers were knocking down buildings in the background. And so that kind of always stayed with me. Um, and then on top of that, my parents took me to see the minstrels perform when I was really young and I was completely fascinated by that. So I always wanted to make a film about that community. And the strange thing is it's, it's such a, beautifully rich community that has so many amazing facets to it, especially music, which they used as a way of fighting the colonial masters. And there's been so few films made about that community. And most of the films tend to focus on the negative side of that community. They, they tend to focus on gangsterism and, uh, and those kind of things and prison films, but there's such a beautiful, there's so many beautiful elements to that community that aren't uh, gangster related. So I just um, was always inspired to make a film about the good aspects of that community. Is the BOCAP in danger of being lost like the rest of District 6? Yes, very much. Gentrification is a huge part of uh, what's happening in, in BOCAP at the moment because, you know, there's big business and corporates arrive and, and show people uh, decent amounts of money to buy their lifelong you know, thing something that's been in their in their families for hundreds of years, and people are desperate, so they they sell they sell their houses, and then those places are knocked down and replaced by you know skyscrapers, and um, and that's happening all the time with the book cop. So it's a huge thing of of how do the the local people hold on to their to their birthrights, you know, to to something that's been in their families forever. And um, they're tempted by, by, by money. And, and so people are selling up and they, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a crazy situation. It's actually a, a worldwide situation um, that's yeah. happening with gentrification where predominantly, I would say, neighborhoods where people of color lived and developed culture and community. Um, but there's also, you know, elements of of poverty and so they're put mm. in this situation where they're being offered money um which will yeah. you, know, you know make their lives better but it changes in the, the culture yeah. yeah yeah it changes exactly. the cultural yeah. makeup of of the area yeah and it's lost now the you mentioned the the minstrels uh for people who are listening uh here in in toronto um our side, we're more used to it, to it being called carnival, um, yes. which is something that uh, African slaves did, you know, wherever uh, they were, you know, where, wherever they ended up. Yeah. And, you know, in Trinidad or in the different countries in the Caribbean where I'm from, it's called playing mass, where you have your face painted to dis to disguise yes. yourself from the slave masters. And, you know, you're out there and then you're free for that for that one day. So yeah. um, how was it shooting those elements of carnival? 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, the, the same, the, the things that you mentioned now with, uh, you know, with um, uh, New Orleans and obviously with uh, Rio and um, anywhere where there was a community of, of slaves, they would, it's very similar to what happened in Cape Town because it was a thing that brought everyone together. And there's a weird, there's such a weird connection with America um, with the with the minstrels because the the slaves were emancipated in in 1840s in Cape Town, and just prior to that, there was a ship that had come over from the states. Obviously, a whole lot of white sailors, you know, doing blackface, um, and, and and for some weird reason, the slaves took it on. Obviously, the inverse of that, and then painted their faces white and celebrated being minstrels when they were freed and they took to the streets dressed as minstrels. So, you know, there was that. And and then obviously the cool thing about the minstrels is they would sing songs. Um, the colonial masters wouldn't understand what they were saying because they would sing in an Afrikaans, which is a language which is now really, really gaining um, uh, credibility. But in those days they would sing songs that would, 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 take the the mickey out of or take fun or poke fun at the colonial masters and it was the one time when they could do that and it was just it's just such a, a key thing to that um community that even um you know it was weird because of the whoever was the colonial master at the time whether it was holland or was the dutch or the english it would go back and forth and at some stage they were freed and then their freedom was taken away and then apartheid happened and even through apartheid this community and the minstrels continued to um, to thrive and to keep this culture alive by using comedy and 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 taking the Mickey out of their masters all the time, which is also fascinating elements. Um, and so it was key for for us when we were making the film that we were true to all of those um, elements and that we we um, we did justice to to what those those people have gone through 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 apartheid and through slavery um did you have any locals uh, assist you with the car with the car carnival elements yeah it was key it was very important that we had all of our hrds were black um uh, all of our hrds were from the community uh and that lent a lot of authenticity to the project obviously you know i'm an old white guy so I'm very much uh, not part of that community, but we did everything we could in terms of the writing and in terms of um, in terms of making sure that the cast and the crew were all uh, from that community. You have a wonderful character named um, Aunt V. <laughs> yes, Tell Auntie me Val. about that, Auntie Val. Tell me about that actress. She's June Van Merch. She's absolutely amazing. She's tiny. She's petite she's like five foot tall and um we were worried about some of because we have to there was a couple of scenes that were actually cut out of the film but she was in the tunnels the tunnels that exist under the under the castle um and in their car it was crazy we found a snake there were cockroaches there were rats there were, the smell was so foul down there and i was really worried about june being stuck in the tunnels with us but she was she was amazing she was up and down the ladders all day she's just like she's got so much energy and and she was so brilliant to have in the film she kept us all laughing and she's just like she, her energy is is mad she's she's an incredible woman and um initially when i wrote this like 14 years ago she, mtv wasn't a big part of the film but as time has gone by 
we changed because it was all guys at one stage. It was all men in the film, but luckily we have really strong female characters and on TV being our matriarch was, it was so beautiful that she came to light and that uh, she has such a big part in the film. So yeah, she's, she's crazy. She really is. I'm going to go actually go back to something you said you've been thinking about this and writing it for 14 years. Yeah. Did I Since hear correctly? Yeah, absolutely. It's been ah. going for 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. We, we have for so long, we, I mean, we had, we had Trevor Noah as a lead before he got the daily show. Um, we were struggling to get funding. And on the day we actually got funding, Trevor got the, got the daily show. And he was like, John, uh, you know, I've got to choose between them. And I said, well, you know, you can't choose the daily show. <laughs> <laughs> so his life changed forever from that time onwards. But yeah, it's been going for 14 years. Yeah. Let's talk about this heist movie. Um, how yeah. this group of people um, are going to remain, going to save the nightclub that the lead uh, character's yeah. father started. So let's get into the heist and let's talk about your actors. So your lead character is um, Jacques de Silva. Yes. Uh, tell me about this wonderful looking man. Yes, he is a gorgeous man. Uh, I realized when we were, we were casting Jacques that um, uh, he's he was doing so well and, and he's a theater actor. And uh, we had seen a couple of things that have been uh, recorded, uh, filmed about, about him on set. And I thought he was really talented. But typical guy in me, I didn't realize that he was as good looking and was as good looking as the ladies think he is because every time we had castings and we brought up uh, Jacques, everyone would say, okay, my goodness, that's, uh, that's a fantastic leading man. And they loved him so much. So, so he is a, he's a gorgeous man. He's also a very, very talented uh, man and uh, a very, um, he's a really great actor. He's, um, he gives so much. He loves the role. Uh, he's so excited about his community being, um, being shown on an international level and a film um, that pays tribute to to his forefathers and his community. So he was just uh, he's just a fantastic find. Yes, and he plays a character um, who's estranged from his father, goes back to the town, and he thinks he's going to leave, and then he finds out the club is in trouble, and then he mm. finds a way. Uh, he devises a way with a group of people to to save uh, the club. So this is where the sort of uh, Ocean's reference and every heist movie reference comes in. Yeah, it's a trope, yeah. 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 And I love the fact that the characters in the movie reference these heist movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, we had to be careful because we had a whole lot of other references about, about heist films. We kind of had to tone it down a little bit because it was it was too it was a little bit indulgent. But but yeah, I mean that that community is like anyone in the world. They all watch Ocean's Eleven. They all watch those kind of films. So it it felt like it was um, it was quite authentic. You did you did it you did enough. You okay, mentioned cool. it okay. enough. Yeah, that it was <laughs> cool. Because sometimes it you're watching it. Because sometimes you're watching a film and you're thinking, well, haven't they ever seen a movie? It's like, <laughs> yeah. And you know exactly. what these guys have because it's realistic yeah. to talk like that. It is exactly it is. Yeah, they would. They if if there was a crew of people who were going to rob a bank in Cape Town, they would say, yeah, this is our way. This is like Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, I want to get to uh, assembling the crew, what uh, the actors, yep. the other actors, difficult mm. or how long did the audition process last in gathering this crew for the heist? Well, because it's been going for so long, we actually, the script was around just after Bunny Chow and um, we got selected to the Latelier in Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival. And um, in order to sell the film or the idea, we, we went to Cape Town 10 years ago to shoot um, the carnival. And some of those, uh, we shot on a Bolex and we shot on um, and some other stuff. And luckily, we lost a whole lot of that footage, unfortunately, but some of it remained and some of it has stayed in the film. So it was it was great to 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 film down there, but the the you know as as life has changed, like I said, Auntie V didn't have a big part; she's got a much bigger part now. The guy who plays Mortimer, who gets picked up from prison, he was actually in the film ten years ago, but he was playing a a kid called Young Yusuf. Now, Young Yusuf's character developed so much that um, I changed Young Yusuf to Mila. So Bronte. Who the girl with the dreadlocks who plays um, who plays Mila? She was actually a, it was her character was a guy was young Yusuf who was uh, who was Keenan, so that developed and, and that changed. So we actually shot with Keenan ten years ago, and with um, Lookman Adams ten years ago. So, and then Lookman has now moved on to be the guy who created the music tracks, and Keenan, who was playing young Yusuf, is now playing the guy who gets picked out of who gets picked up from prison. Uh, and his original character has now become a girl who's played by Mila. So this has been going wow. on for so long. I know it's very complicated. It's like, you know, it's I love I love that it uh, that uh, the character of Mila came into play. Yeah, um, she's, yeah. We had to. There was so many guys. It was so male dominated that I really needed a strong female character in the in the plotting of the of the house because. Um, we didn't have that up until about about a year, two years, about a year ago, maybe. Yeah. That Mila became a, a, a female character. Young yeah. Yusuf changed to her. Yeah. So you've got um, you've got uh, the Bronte character. You've got the Keisha. Let's yeah. talk about Keisha. Was she, when did yeah, she, she come in? So Shamila Miller's um, she's incredible uh, actress, and she was coming to the fore in terms of. Uh, an actress that we were seeing uh, on TV shows and uh, Moonyin Lee, who is a casting agent, she sadly passed away uh, a, a year ago during COVID, from COVID. And um, she was a huge champion of Shamila. And uh, Moonyin Lee was involved with the film for from the beginning. And we couldn't find uh, a lead female until she said, have a look at this, at this young girl, Shamila. And I immediately saw Shamila. And so for the last four years, I've been chatting to Shamila about playing the lead. And shame uh, she always jokes because I I've been, I phoned her every six months since we since we first met at a at a director's workshop. And I pitched it to her and said, "Listen, I've got this film, and I love you to play the female lead." And um, and so then you know, and it kept going away because we kept losing funding, and we had so much drama trying to raise money for the film that. I would phone her every six months and say, hey, Shamila, are you, are you sure you're still keen on the film? And she'd laugh and say, yeah, yeah I'm still keen, I'm still keen. So um, so she was, uh, it was great to have her have her on board and the chemistry between her and Jacques was amazing. And then yes, Keenan, yes, yeah. Uh, they, they're amazing. We were so lucky because if that had failed, 
if it wasn't great between the two of them, it would have been so hard to to, to sell the film. Exactly. You know, as a story, yeah. Yeah, I'm sad the um the casting director didn't get to see the final film. It's so terrible. It's so sad because she would have loved it. She was so prominent an icon like in, in South Africa in the film industry. She really was. Uh, she's an amazing lady. And I miss her. I really miss her. I, like, I spoke to her daughter, who's Cindy Lee, who's also a very good uh, director in South Africa. And I spoke to Cindy two days ago, just said how much I missed her mom. I would have loved her to see this film. She would have, she would have loved it. Uh, you have some banging music in there. In that <laughs> film. Do. From from the we very do. beginning. I love yeah, the way you cool, work huh? the music uh, throughout the film. Okay, cool. How yeah. long did that take? How many tracks did you throw away before you oh, you decided so, to go yeah, with what you had? It's so yeah, we had so many. I mean, I mean, uh, Lukman Adams, who I said was the guy who was acting in the film originally mm-hmm. ten years ago. He, he became the music uh, composer. Um, he created twenty five tracks with his group of of minstrels in the studio. So we had we played it like a music video almost with the tracks, because we had such a cool um, uh, long pre prod. Lookman and I had time to to create the tracks and for him to do them in studio and for us to almost use them like a music video where we played um, playback and then the actors uh, did stuff around them. So, you know, he, he, created, um, he created those those tracks. And then Carl Shepard, who is also a um, fantastic young composer from the community as well, he um, he's doing films with William Kentridge and, and creating amazing scores. I was I approached him and said, "Listen, I love you to do the score," and uh, pitched him the story. And he said it was amazing because it was very much like his life. He, like uh, Jerome's character, had left Cape Town to try and make it on his own as a musician, and uh, he had said goodbye to his um, to his community of of minstrels and said he kind of turned his back on it. And he just said, after our initial meeting, he said it was like it was amazing because it it's so close to what happened to him in his life. So. He jumped on board, created beautiful music, and it the, the film was always because it's about minstrels. Um, it had, the music had to be had to be a character, had to be a huge strong character yes. in the film, and uh, and it drove the film forward. It drove the community because even the choir, who are ex cons, you know they sing in the film, and and there was important for them that that Jerome comes back and keeps the minstrel carnival going, and, and then the the jazz club is something that. That Jerome has been perfecting his time in Joburg, so he brings that element of jazz back into the and hip hop into the old school minstrel sound. So there's a that's why the song in the final scene of the film is a mix of Jerome's um, creating music in Joburg as a hip hop um, producer and a mix of the old minstrel music as a, as a blend between the two. So we had to, throughout the film, we had to be aware that there was minstrel sounds and there was jazz sounds and there was hip hop. Mm-hmm. And then all of that was brought together and woven together by Jacques, uh, by the Jerome character. And at the end of the music, which he's taking the music forward. Taking Wonderful. The music forward. I love um, the characters in your film. I love the pawnbroker. Oh, but there's you. but there's one character. I he's kind of Shakespearean in that he plays the fool who sort of mm. you know on the street corner narrating what's yes. what's happening. Yes. Why did you Herald, include yeah. such a character? Well, I mean I mean the 
you know, I, I love that idea. It, it's almost like it's very taken from Spike Lee. Anyone that knows Spike Lee will, will know that it's a real steal from from Do the Right Thing. Um, you know, it's it's the character who's who's kind of in the Spike in Do the Right Thing. He's the guy who's slightly mentally challenged, and he kind of he walks around. And he's got that false um, phone around his chest, and he kind of keeps talking and he keeps talking out to people on the street. So I, I lifted that completely shamelessly from, from, from Mr. Spike Lee. And I always wanted to have a heralder uh, or a town crier. He was kind of basically talking to himself, narrating the film. Uh, I used Auntie Val as a narrator, uh, him as a narrator, and I think Jacques and Schumiller both do voiceovers. So I didn't want to do have one voiceover person, but I wanted a whole lot of different people telling stories because it almost feels like the community used to tell stories uh, verbally and that and that many of the um, cultures in South Africa have come through a history of telling stories um, verbally, not necessarily written down. So I thought it was important that we have somebody telling the story in that way. Okay. So I went way back with my Shakespearean reference, but it's absolutely, <laughs> it's actually more uh, recent. Uh, no, no, it's definitely Shakespearean, but, but yes, it's, it's also grounded in the, the contemporary cinema. Yeah. John, thank you so much for doing this interview. I wish you an amazing time at TIFF after all these years with the film, yeah, The you. Umbrella Man. Thank you, Donna. So cool to speak to you again. It really is amazing. I hope to see you next week. This is one movie I would love to see with a crowd because I want to be there when they react. Okay. Ah, Cool. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Toronto International Film Festival runs from September the 8th to the 18th. The website is www.tiff.net. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM.
shelter your bread home a place for cool meditation home seed of our peace loving nation home the land of our ancestors place in our hearts for our brothers and our sisters home the quiet comfort in my soul i call You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G., The More the Merrier. Sometimes you have a wonderful interview and technical difficulties impact it and it's devastating because the conversation is lost. This is what happened with my conversation with VT90 about her film, This Place. Fortunately, I was able to salvage a bit of the interview and I know VT90 will be back because her film, her debut film, This Place Has Legs, meaning it's going to go on after the Toronto International Film Festival. The film is centered around two women who fall in love. One is Tamil, the other is Mohawk and Iranian, but each are dealing with issues of estrangement from their fathers and their own identities. They're young women developing their sense of self, and it is a fascinating story to watch. The film stars DeVry Jacobs as Goeniosta and Priya Guns as Malay. And it's very interesting to have two, quote, Indians on screen living in this place. Here now is my interview with VT90. VT, I see from the credits that you co-wrote the film with DeVry Jacobs and Golshan Admule. Yeah, so we wrote the film together. It was DeVry who plays the lead, Gawaniosta, one of the leads, and Golshan Abdumule. And DeVry and I were introduced through mutual friends and community. And Golshan and I have been friends for a long time. And she also has the experience firsthand of being a refugee who came here with her parents and her family. And so... Um, it was about a three-year journey, I would say, three and a half, yeah, three and a half going on four-year journey from the moment I met Devry to bringing on Golshan. And, you know, originally it was a, fr- a story of two friends that became a story about two women falling in love for the first time. Why did you decide to call the film This Place? Because when I was watching your film, I was thinking, this place, this place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. That was part of the intention for sure. Like, um, I think it was Golshan. I cannot remember. I think everything kind of melded together at this point. But yes, that was part of our intention, this idea of people having been displaced to this land, but also displaced on this land. And as well, like this kind of idea of this being the place that so many people come together and their stories come together and their lives intersect. So very much, yeah, a play on this being the place, but also this idea of displacement that so many of us have experienced. And you have these two characters who are falling in love. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the fact that, yes, they were lesbian, but it wasn't about them coming out or being lesbian. It was about what they had in common as people in terms of being both estranged from their fathers. Yeah, it was intentional so much of the time, like, 
I think a lot of narratives around queer stories are focused on coming out and or that experience of or the rejection that they face. And those are all very real, very, you know, I'm not to negate those experiences being very real and, and happening every day because the world is still the world and it is what it is. But at the same time, we wanted to explore, you know, a lot of people in our communities, I know in my own community, you know, people don't always have had conversations with friends. People don't always have the privilege of coming out in the way that we have learned to see coming out, right? And mm -hmm. their, their way of living their life looks um, some, very different from what is prescribed as the way of, you know, coming out, so to say. And so we really wanted to show a film and characters where, you know, the story is not about them being queer. It's not about their coming out. That's not made to be the big deal. It's just matter of fact, it's every day. It's like anybody else falling in love. We wanted to make it feel really natural and not the problem in the film, you know? And, um, you know, we have, when folks will see it, when Malay, you know, does share it with someone in her family, the reaction is very much not, I think, what people would expect. And, and I love that, you know, it was very much intentional. So we wanted to look at all the bigger things that play in their lives, their family, the complications of trauma and grief and things that are very universal and let their falling in love be a very beautiful kind of untouched thing. You know, of course, the family experiences outside of that affect them, but their falling in love is held like very sacred and not... Um, not problematized in a way that we've seen before. And I think it's important to hold space for all kinds of stories around queer experiences and identities. I like that you said the problem of the, um, the issue of being them, of them being queer is not the problem yeah. because people have so many more issues going on with them than that. And I also, that's, I think that's refreshing in terms of looking at queer film, that that also be part of the narrative. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, it's it's not a problem. And so we didn't want to make it a problem. You know, maybe it's not, it's maybe it's not realistic to some people. Maybe it's, it's not other people's experiences. I, you know, I understand that there could be so many different reactions to it, but what happens when the family's not upset about it. <laughs> what happens when it's, you know, people are supportive, you know, we see that. Right, because that's part of the queer stories too. Exactly. And so it was very much intentional, you know, there are, you know, you know, Devry is a queer indigenous woman. Like we have a lot of queer women of color involved with the film, queer folks of color. And I think um, we wanted to do something different. <laughs> and I don't think it's so different in real life, but we wanted to do something different on screen. And what does it mean to you to have your film, This Place, premiering at TIFF 2022. I'm really excited for our film to be premiering at TIFF, especially in the discovery section. Um, in the past, some of my most favorite filmmakers like Julie Dash and Trinity Minha, Steve McQueen, Barry Jenkins have all shared their work in the discovery program. And so it's like a dream come true, but a dream I never really had the chance to even dream possible coming true. And for that to happen in my hometown and have all of our communities and friends and family and international audiences as well um, come together in the cinema is so exciting. And I'm so in awe and very grateful and don't know what to expect, but completely ready for the moment we get to share this film with the world. And that is VT90 talking about the film This Place. Interestingly enough, 
The film is very Canadian. Uh, the dialogue is in Mohawk, Persian, Tamil, French, and English. For all things TIFF, www.tiff.net. Click on the Toronto Film Festival link to find out the dates of the screenings. on today's show you heard hot 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 from bend like beckham then you heard montanyama from totsi 
Then we segued into Lumumba, Miriam Makiba, then Home, Mosa Nishama, and Mendy Madarama from Monsoon Wedding. And we're going to go out with Brown Man, Nick Ali, and Carpe Diem. Thank you so much for listening to The More the Merrier. This is Donna G signing off. I'll be back next week with more coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival 2022.